Hi, this is Rosie Tillis and Rachel Hine, Duke Plastic Surgery residents on The Resident Review, a Duke Plastic Surgery podcast. This is a lecture series designed to aid in preparation for our yearly in-service examination. Our goal is to take you through high-yield topics along with experts in their respective fields in order to maximize your knowledge and potential scores. Stay tuned after the episode for a brief message about our sponsors. In this episode, we'll be discussing ear reconstruction. This is a part of our quick hit series with topics taken directly from the in-service exam questions from the past five to eight years. So for ear reconstruction, we're gonna start by talking about the anatomy of the ear, development, anomalies, then we'll talk about reconstructive options and complications. Starting with anatomy, um, there are several blood supplies to the ear. The most dominant blood supply is the posterior auricular artery. It supplies the anterior and posterior surface of the auricle. The superficial temporal artery supplies the lateral surface of the auricle. The occipital artery supplies the posterior auricular skin. The veins drain into the external jugular. And for innervation of the ear, the great auricular nerve innervates the lower lateral portion and inferior cranial surface, including the lobule. The auriculotemporal nerve innervates the superior lateral and superior anterior surface of the external acoustic meatus. The lesser occipital nerve innervates the superior cranial surface of the ear and Arnold's nerve or the vagus nerve innervates the posterior inferior external auditory canal and inferior conchal bowl. The lymphatic drainage correlates with the embryologic helix. So the tragus root of the helix, superior helix from the first branchial arch drains into the parotid nodes and the anti-helix, anti-tragus and lobule from the second branchial arch drain into the cervical nodes. So for the aesthetic relationships of the ear, the ear originates one ear length posterior to the lateral orbital rim. The height is generally five and a half to six and a half centimeters. The ratio is two to one height to width. It will protrude one to two centimeters and have a 25 degree incline. It will tilt 20 degrees and projection from superior to inferior is 10 millimeters superiorly, 16 millimeters in the middle third and 20 millimeters in the inferior third. Moving on to external ear development, this happens at the end of the first trimester when the six mesenchymal proliferations, the hillocks form from the first phalangeal cleft and from the first and second arches, and that happens at about four to 10 weeks. The branchial arches become important around the fourth week of gestation. The oracle arises from the first and second arches, um, and there are six hillocks, and then the first through third hillock go on to form the tragus, the root of the helix, and the superior helix. The four through six hillocks go on to form the posterior helix, the antihelix, the antitragus, and the lobule. The antihelix comes from the second branchial arch. Meckel's cartilage comes from the first branchial arch, and the middle ear comes from the first pharyngeal pouch. Failure of the antihelix to form during weeks 12 through 16 results in a protruding scapha. So some of the common ear anomalies we see in kids include microtia, This is the absence of external ear structures. The inner ear is not affected in microtia. This happens during the fourth through the 12th week of interuterine development. It can be associated with golden heart syndrome, which is orbital auricular vertebral syndrome, or Treacher-Collinge is the most common associated with microtia, and this is from the first and second branchial arches. For microtia, external hearing aids can be placed around six to 12 months. Ear reconstruction can proceed around six to seven years, and ear canal creation can happen at age 13 to 19. Baja or hearing implants behind the mastoid should be placed after autologous ear reconstruction. Autologous reconstruction typically is performed between six and seven years of age, like we discussed earlier. And this is because you have to have sufficient rib cartilage for reconstruction. 
The ear obtains about 85% of its growth at age three and is fully developed by five to seven. The difference between the Nagata and the Brent techniques are the stages. So there's either two in Nagata or three or more in the Brent techniques. And the reconstruction also differs in the tragus and lobule. So like I discussed, Nagata has typically fewer stages. And then in the Brent technique, the lobule and tragal reconstruction are separate. That adds to the stages. Both use autologous rib cartilage for the framework, and usually a continuous closed suction drainage is best for adhering the skin graft to the cartilage construct. So elastic frameworks are not really long-lasting. However, alloplastic reconstruction can be performed successfully with a temporal parietal fascial flap to cover the implant. And this flap, this temporal parietal fascial flap, is based on the superficial temporal artery. It does require incisions on the hair-bearing scalp, and so skin grafting is also required. A stall ear involves a third cruise, flattening of the antihelix, unfurling of the helical rim, and absent superior cruise of the antihelix. Treatment for a stall ear involves advancement of the third cruise, so a local cartilage flap, to reconstruct a more prominent antihelical fold. Cryptosia is also known as a hidden ear. This is a congenital deformity of cartilage of the scapha and antihelix. The upper pole of the ear is buried beneath the scalp, and the superior auriculocephalic sulcus is absent. This is due to abnormal distribution of the intrinsic transverse and oblique auricular muscles. Treatment of, a crypt of cryptosia is surgical release when the child is older. You can have helical release with a split thickness skin graft for the superior portion of the auricle. Cup ear deformity is a hooding of the scapha and helix and a flattening of the antihelix. Lop ear deformity is a protrusion of the ear and a folding of the superior helix. This can be treated with a flag flap transfer. Prominent ear is characterized by widening of the conchoscaphal angle, increased or auriculocephalic distance, loss of the antihelical fold, and it's often described as conchal valgus. The upper and middle thirds are often affected, so the conchoscaphal angle is over 90 degrees, the helix is positioned 12 to 15 millimeters from the temporal region, and the cephalo-auricular angle is typically increased over 25 degrees. The middle ear prominence is from hypertrophy of the concha, the depth of the concha is more than 1.5 centimeters, and the middle third is located more than 16 to 8 millimeters away from the mastoid. The Mastardi technique for the prominent ear involves placement of permanent sutures through the cartilage and perichondrium on the cranial portion of the ear to bend the helix posteriorly from the scapha cartilage to the conchal cartilage. Stentrum's technique involves when the anterior surface of the antihelix is bent and the cartilage is scored to create a posterior roll. Luckett's technique is when the crest, a crescent-shaped portion of skin and cartilage is excised from the length of the antihelix and the edges are sutured to recreate the fold. The furnace technique involves sutures placed from the concha to the mastoid to diminish the size of the concha. Inadequate reduction of the concha can protrude the lobule and over-tightening of the mastoid sutures may lead to a pinned-back appearance. Webster's technique corrects a prominent helical tail by fixation of the helical tail to the concha. You can also have a resection of the concha by itself and a resection of the postericular skin. And in children, sutures are effective in creation of an antihelical fold because the cartilage is soft and pliable. Prominent ear is the most likely complication. So basically the most common complication is recurrence. A telephone ear is excessive reduction of the concha and inadequate correction of the prominent upper and lower poles during otoplasty. Thanks, Rosie. So next we'll talk about ear molding. Estrogen is responsible for growing ear cartilage in the neonatal period. Auricular molding at three days in these infants is encouraged due to the increased maternal estrogens and pliability of the cartilage. So you can initiate as soon as three days and as far out as three months of age. 
Complications include skin ulceration and you want to treat for about two months with molds for ear deformities. When treatment is delayed several weeks, the success rate drops to 50% from 90% in some studies. And ear molding can be used to treat prominent ear, cryptosha, lop ear, and stall's ear. There are several different traumatic injuries of the ear. The first one is blunt trauma, and the risk for this is hematoma. You should evacuate this with a bolster dressing because a complication of this is cauliflower ear, which is subperichondrial hematoma over devascularized cartilage. For burns of the ear, like we talked about in our burns lecture, you want to use mafenide acetate and a non-compressive dressing. Um, pseudomonas is the most common cause of a superative eschar in a burn patient. So the next thing is chondrodermatitis nodularis chronica helicis, which is a painful chronic nodular or cystic ulcerative lesion seen in the superior hole of the helix. This is typically in older men in our question stems, and it's mistaken as a malignancy. The treatment of this is complete excision biopsy of the underlying cartilage and closure. This is thought to be due to pressure injuries of the superior helix. For defect reconstruction of the ear, what we see is most commonly a squamous cell carcinoma on the ear for malignancy. There are partial thickness defects where the perichondrium is intact and to reconstruct this skin graft should be taken from the contralateral posterior auricular region. If the perichondrium is missing, you can do a wedge excision as long as the defect is less than 1.5 centimeters. For a traumatic ear, if there's a variable partial thickness without stating if the perichondrium is intact, in a question stem, you should debride this with local wound care and let it demarcate. For full thickness injuries, we separate this into the anatomical areas of the ear and then whether they are small or large. So for the helical rim, small defects less than two centimeters, you can use contra contralateral composite grafting. If it's less than 1.5, the anti-abuke procedure or the chondrocutaneous rotation flaps if it's less than two centimeters. The anti-abuke flap is made by an incision through the helical sulcus through skin and cartilage. The helix is advanced into the defect and it creates a V to Y advancement of the cruise helicysts. And then the chondrocutaneous rotation flaps are inferiorly based on the anti-helix, anti-trigus or lobule. And this is used for defects of the middle or lower helix up to five centimeters can be closed with lobule advancement. If you have large defects greater than two centimeters, starting with the superior helical defects, you can use an auricular cartilage graft from the contralateral ear. You can use a conchal transposition flap, which is a composite flap based on the crux of the helix. And this assists in reconstruction deformities of the superior helix, like I said. Middle third defects, you can use the post-auricular flap or the rotated post-auricular island flap. This post-auricular flap is supplied by the posterior auricular artery and vein. You wrap the flap in the conchal graft, and then you pin the ear back and flap. And this requires division of the base of the flap in the second stage. For conchal defects, you can use a retro auricular flap or a post auricular island flap or revolving door flap. This is good for conchal defects and can replace the entire concha. If you have an entire upper two thirds loss, so multiple subunits, you can use rib cartilage graft with temper parietal fascia flap and a split thickness skin graft. This accounts also for multiple anatomical components missing. You can perform a staged reconstruction with the cartilage framework, and that's frequently tested on as the best method for reconstruction. If your patient is older, partial middle defects can be treated by wedge resection and primary closure. And this can be done for defects greater than two, up to two and a half centimeters. So greater than that two centimeter cutoff, like we talked earlier. In younger patients, again, it can cause cupping and it will need a flap like we talked about earlier. 
ear reconstruction in elderly patients are, are typically difficult due to the brittle nature of the costal cartilage. It's calcified, whereas younger patients will have difficulty with skin grafts. Finally, microsurgical replantation of the ear. This should be performed if there's an ear loss where the patient brings the ear into the ED or to the hospital. You perform a tissue debridement, dissection, and then can perform anastomosis of the large arteries to the ear to enter the posterior aspect of the penis. So either external carotid, anterior auricular branch of the STA or branch of the occipital artery. If there is no venous outflow, the ear should still be reattached with microvascular techniques followed by leech therapy for venous congestion. In children with a large loss of the ear where microsurgery is not an option, you may perform a composite graft. Porous polyethylene implants are great for burn reconstruction. This can be covered with temporoparietal fascia. If the graft is exposed to a small area, this can be allowed to granulate in with dressing changes. Rib cartilage is preferable to porous polyethylene due to extrusion rates. And the most aesthetic outcomes for ear reconstruction when the entire ear is absent is a placement of an osseointegrated screw and prosthetic device particularly when the temporoparietal flap is unavailable. Indications for ear prosthesis include traumatic and ablative defects. All right, so finally, some of the complications from these procedures. So chondritis is marked by pain, swelling, and tenderness, and this is an infection of the cartilage. It requires IV antibiotics or surgical treatment if it's superative. If there is infection of the reconstruction, you'll need to IND it and probably leave drains prior to removal of the cartilage. Ear hematomas are another common complication, which was mentioned earlier. So you can try and aspirate these. And if that's not successful, you may need to surgically drain them with through and through sutures and gauze bolsters to prevent the cauliflower ear. Severe unilateral ear pain after otoplasty is typically due to a hematoma. And if not evacuated in these cases, they can develop pressure necrosis and fibrosis. Duskiness of the graft after a composite graft probably needs HBO treatment. It stimulates angiogenesis. And after that, you can leave the composite graft in place for at least two weeks to demarcate. We talked about how venous congestion of ear replantation can also be managed non-operatively by the use of leeches. Arterial insufficiency of a replanted ear usually requires surgery. And then the last thing we can talk about is banking ear cartilage. So you can bank the cartilage in a, a subcute pocket of the abdomen. The cartilage can lose its strength and architectural detail, and it can become warped or contracted, but it is a good idea to bank it to see if you can use it later. And then a miscellaneous fact to end the, uh, the lecture here, local control rates for radiation of the head and neck region for squamous cell carcinoma are predicted by the size of the lesion. So less than one centimeter will have a 91% curative rate for primary squamous cell. Mohs has the highest reported cure rate for squamous cell. Thanks so much for listening to our quick hits ear lecture and random squamous cell fact. Tune in next time for our next lecture. We would like to thank Allergan for their continued support of our podcast. Allergan Aesthetics is now a part of AbbVie, an international leader in many different therapeutic categories. Many of the topics and therapies we discuss on our podcast are provided by Allergan. They continue to be a leader in the fields of breast reconstruction, abdominal wall reconstruction, medical aesthetics, and much more. Additionally, they are dedicated to supporting the education of plastic surgery residents and plastic surgeons across the country.